please stand for the reading of God's word. We are reading out of Luke 24, verse 36 through 47. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Now one, one person over there. Thank you. Good morning. Is that Molly? Was that? Yes. Thank you, Molly. Good morning to all the rest of you as well. And I uh, hope you're doing all right. Uh, we are continuing on in our sermon series, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. And I started us off last week by reading a poem from Stephen Crane, and Stephen Crane, as I noted last week, was a kind of a grumpy pagan. This week, I want to start us off uh, reading another uh, work from another pagan, uh, Seneca. And uh, much of my, my fun reading uh, takes me into the classical world of the Greco-Romans. And a lot of you are probably like, oh, that explains a little bit more, another piece of the puzzle uh, for our pastor there. But uh, I do enjoy uh, the classical world, and Seneca is my favorite of the pagan uh, writers. And he was a Stoic philosopher and a Roman statesman. statesman. He was uh, the tutor of the Emperor Nero, and he was massively influential in his day, both as a philosopher and then also uh, as a politician and a statesman. And his, uh, his philosophical legacy has carried on even into the present day. And maybe you don't know it, but Stoicism is making a bit of a comeback. That's what they tell me uh, in the millennial world. So I'm not the only one that likes Seneca, apparently. But uh, Stoicism uh, was Seneca's philosophical, philosophical framework. And I want to read uh, f to you, uh, by way of introduction here, one of his pieces, it was called The Consolation. They, the philosophers of those days would write, would write consolations to people that had lost loved ones. So he wrote a consolation to a grieving friend named Marcia who had lost her son. And I want you to hear how he writes his consolation. 
He writes, There's no need, therefore, for you to hurry to the tomb of your son. What lies there is his basis part, and a part that in life was the source of much trouble. Bones and ashes are no more parts of him than were his clothes and the other protections of the body. He is now complete, leaving nothing of himself behind. He has fled away and wholly departed from earth. For a little while, while he tarried above us, while he was being purified, and was, for, for a little while he tarried above us, and was being purified, and was ridding himself of all the blemishes and stains that still clung to him from his mortal existence. But now he has soared aloft and sped away to join the souls of the blessed. A saintly band gives him welcome. So in Seneca's framework, and this would have been not just Stoicism, but really the whole Greco-Roman philosophical tradition, in that framework, the soul of those who had deceased was able to get free of the body. The uh, ancient philosopher Plato would refer to the soul as the prison house of the body. The basis part of the human being, which was our material existence, that was, that was the base part that the soul wanted to get free from so that the soul could speed aloft to the heavens where a saintly band would give the departed soul welcome. So the goal of redemption in the philosophical framework was to be freed from the confines of the earth and materiality, to be lifted up into the heavens and dwell there with the souls. Now take a moment to ponder Seneca's consolation. Just think about it, framework that he lays out. If you're a Christian this morning, and you don't find much in Seneca's consolation to trouble you, then you should, in fact, be troubled. Because Seneca's consolation is very decidedly unchristian. It's very decidedly not the framework that the Bible gives to the redemptive narrative of Scripture. In our passage this morning... We're going to pick back up where we left off, and we're going to see, as we've already been read, as already been read for us, Jesus eats broiled fish. And therein, I submit to you, lies the key to understanding the, entire, the, the Bible's entire narrative of redemption. In fact, I uh, titled my sermon, Jesus Eats Broiled Fish or the Redemption of Humanity. You can kind of take your pick as to which title you like, but they're basically going after the same thing. And I want to draw that connection for you this morning. What I, what I want us to see, what I've been praying that you will see, is that God's plan of redemption is not the absolution or the annihilation of our humanity, but the consummation and the restoration of our humanity. So our aim this morning is going to be twofold. First, I want us to see how Jesus' fish dinner affirms God's redemption of humanity and our world. And then second, I want to highlight one catch that stands between us and participating in this redemption. All right, so highlighting Jesus' fish dinner and then one catch. All right, that's where we're going this morning. So let's turn our attention back to Luke 24. We're picking up in the next episode of our story. And we're picking right back up where we left off last Sunday. In fact, it's the very next verse, verse 36. Well, we left off last week 
two of the disciples had uh, encountered Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and they had walked with him. They, in fact, had begun to eat dinner with him. Then they didn't realize it was Jesus until right at the very end. Then he revealed himself to them, and they disappeared. So then they jumped up. They ran all the way back to Jerusalem to find the other disciples and to let them know that Jesus had risen from the dead, that he was still alive. And when he, they get there, the other disciples were like, we know because Peter has seen him too. And so you can imagine them all excitedly talking to each other about the fact that Jesus has been seen. And we pick up in verse 36 in the midst of this exchange that is going on in this room in some house somewhere in Jerusalem where they're all telling themselves that Jesus has risen from the dead. And while they're having this story told back and forth, Jesus tells, or uh, Luke tells us, Jesus appears among them. Now, I like to picture this. If I was making a movie, I like to picture this uh, like a movie, right? You'd have this scene where you have all the disciples together in a room, and the two from the road of, on, on the road to Emmaus are, are holding court and telling all the others about what had happened and what they've seen. And so the camera is kind of on the, the whole room, and then it focuses in on the two that are telling the story. And then as the two are talking, it kind of pans back and it's showing the faces of the other disciples as they're listening. And as it kind of pans across, like there's Jesus like amongst the other disciples. Like it comes back. You know, like how did he get there, right? And I have a picture like one of the disciples like turning over to like talk to the guy next to him like, hey, isn't that great? And it's Jesus that he's talking to. And then like giving a yelp because it freaks him out because that's Jesus standing there. And when did he get there? So they're all pretty scared of this sudden appearance of Jesus. And Jesus says, peace be to you. And they think, Luke tells us, that they're seeing a spirit, which on one hand is a little crazy because they've just been telling each other how he's risen from the dead. But on the other hand, Jesus is doing all these things that defy the laws of physics as they understand them. And so they presume in that instance that Jesus has come back from the dead in some way as a spirit. And so Jesus says to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet that it is I myself. This isn't just some spirit, some apparition that is appearing among you. It is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then he shows them his hands and his feet. No doubt he's highlighting the scars that had come from his time when he was crucified just days before. He's trying to demonstrate that it's really him. It's not just some apparition, not just some spirit. Right? But it's really, truly him, flesh and bone, back from the dead, just like we're talking to each other here today. Well, the disciples, it's too good to be true. And Luke tells us that they disbelieved it for joy. It's too amazing. When they thought it was a spirit standing there, it freaked them out and they were scared. But when they now are coming to terms with the fact that it's really Jesus, flesh and bone, they just can't even get their heads around it. It just seems too much. And so Jesus then asks for a piece of fish and he eats that. And we're going to come back to that in a moment. But then he, from there, reminds them of all the things that he had been teaching them for the past three years, that everything written in Moses and the prophets and the Psalms had to be fulfilled. And then he opens their minds to understand the scriptures. So just like he had done with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus that we saw last week, 
He, he reveals how the scriptures, Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, all of it had been pointing to the truth the Christ, when he came, would suffer, would be crucified, would die, but then he would rise from the dead and enter into his glory. And so Jesus walks them through the scriptures again. He opens their minds to understand the scriptures, Luke tells us. This had been God's plan all along. Jesus rising from the dead wasn't some, shouldn't have been, some unforeseen, unanticipated occurrence. In fact, the scriptures have been pointing to it from the very beginning. So now let's come back to this bit about the boiled fish. It's maybe a strange detail for Luke to note. Maybe you've read this passage before, and as you're reading through it, you're like, it's curious that he asks for a piece of fish and eats it. Like, why does Luke include this particular detail? But I would submit to you again that Jesus' eating fish is the key, it's the key that drives home the full mystery of God's redemptive purposes. Jesus eats in this moment to overcome their joyous disbelief. They think that he's a spirit, and he wants to demonstrate conclusively that he's not just a spirit. So in order to demonstrate that he's not just a spirit, he eats. The disciples can't believe the bodily resurrection for the joy of it, and what better way to demonstrate that he's really, truly human than to do something that only humans do, that spirits do not do, that's eating. And so eating the boiled fish is a demonstration that his resurrection has not stripped him of his humanity and turned him into something or to someone else. The fact that he's been raised doesn't mean that he's somehow become something other than human. He's been raised as a human being. And to demonstrate the reality of his humanity, he eats the fish. Now, clearly Jesus is doing things that go beyond our present human capacity, even here in just chapter 24 that we saw last week and this week. He's He's somehow vanishing and reappearing in ways that you and I can't do. But that's not because he's less than human. It's because he's fully human. We've talked about this a couple weeks ago. All throughout the gospel, Jesus has been doing fully human things like this. The miracles, the healings, the exorcism, calming the storm. He is demonstrating the sovereignty, the dominion that God intended for humanity to have over creation, but then we lost it because of our sin and our severing of our relationship with God. But how that sovereignty and dominion is restored, we are reunited to the life of God. And Jesus' is coming is showing all the world what human beings should have been all along. He's showing this fully human dominion over creation. Jesus, in his humanity, is what we were created to be in our humanity. He is, as the kids say, humanity off the chain, right? He is humanity unleashed into the world. And do you see how different this is 
from Seneca's vision. Seneca's vision of redemption is to be freed from the shackles of humanity, to shed our bodies like an unneeded cloak, to be released from, a, from the material and created things, to become pure spirit. That's the vision of redemption that Seneca and really the rest of the Greco-Roman philosophical world had of what redemption would be. It would be freed of humanity, freed of materiality, freed of our limitations of our bodiliness and to go pure spirit up into the realm of the gods. But God's vision of redemption as seen in Jesus' resurrection is not the absolution of humanity, but the redemption and the consummation of humanity. And here's the truth the entire redemption narrative of Scripture has been driving at, that everything that God has made is good. And his aim with redemption is not the annihilation of creation, but the healing and the consummation of creation. To rewind it all the way back to the very beginning of our story, back in Genesis 1 and 2, when God made the world, God's own pronouncement over what he had made was that it was good, that it was indeed very good. And then sin came and messed up God's creation. And God's purpose in redemption has not been to just wipe away creation, to say that was a failed effort, right? It's not to wipe away creation, but to, but to fix creation, to heal creation, to make it what he intended it to be all along. And Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit of this new creation that God is making. He's showing us what it means for creation to be restored and redeemed. And it's not to become less human, but it's to become fully and more human. So I think it's important for us to remember the truth of the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, lest we unthinkingly begin to think like Seneca. When God is through with us, when he is through with this world, we will not be less human, but we will be fully human. Now, his restoration of creation, his restoration of you and I, of course, doesn't happen all at once. It doesn't happen in an instance. So we're not going to experience the fullness of it in this life. But we begin to experience even now the first fruits of God's restoration of creation and the restoration of the inward work, of his inward work in our hearts. The bodily resurrection of Jesus, his boiled fish dinner, is the decisive statement that God's ultimate vision for your life and for my life is flourishing within a restored creation, not our removal from it. But now we get to the catch. In verse 47, there is a catch because not everyone will participate in this renewed vision of creation. The catch is repentance. Jesus says that the message of the resurrection is to be proclaimed to the whole world, beginning in Jerusalem. And note the content of the message, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, or as some translations translate this, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The message of forgiveness is the flip side of the message of resurrection. You can think about how just 
Same way that getting rid of the dark and turning on the light are just two ways of talking about the same thing. Forgiveness of sins and rising from the dead are two ways of saying the same basic, basic truth of redemption. Right? It's our sins that cut us off from the life of God. So to be brought back into the life of God is to have our sins forgiven. Right? And so here God is, Christ is talking about this message of redemption, of resurrection, of our participation in the resurrection, going out to the whole world. But the only way that one enters into the room of redemption, Jesus says, is to go through the doorway of repentance. And this is the consistent message of the gospel all throughout the New Testament. Repentance precedes redemption. Repentance precedes restoration. Repentance recedes, precedes renewal. But what does it mean to repent? If redemption hangs on repentance, what does it mean to repent? Quite literally, the term repentance that we find in the New Testament quite literally means changing one's mind. But changing one's mind about what? Well, about one's own ability to make life work, both now and on into eternity apart from God. Repenting of our own self-sufficiency, of our own efforts to fix things. Pastor Manfred, in our pastoral prayer this morning, prayed for just all the difficult things that we've been seeing in the news the past week, or really you can extend it back, you know, the past number of weeks. And there's so many acts of violence in our world. But it's not as though this is the brand new thing that has just happened. We can trace these acts of violence all the way back to Cain and Abel, to the very beginning of the human experience. Our whole human experience has been marked by violence. And we've done our best since our human existence to try to fix these things. Right? the laws we put in place and all the sorts of things we do to try to curb our innate impulses for violence, but we have not yet been able to solve the, the problem of our violence and hatred towards each other. We have baked into the whole human existence, the whole human experience, the very truth of our brokenness. And repentance is coming to terms with the reality that the world that we live in and ourselves are broken beyond our capacity to repair them. And that we need to surrender ourselves to God so that he can fix and redeem us. That's what it means to repent. It means to surrender ourselves to God for him to do his redemptive work in our lives. And this act of repentance, this act of surrender, it takes faith. Because here's the sobering truth of the gospel. It takes a cross to fix a broken world. And not just Jesus's cross, but our own cross. We gain our lives, Jesus has taught us, by dying to self. If we're going to go high, we only go high because we first have gone low. If we want to reign, then we have to first serve. Martin Luther, the great German theologian, he always spoke rather dramatically, and uh, he says this about 
the gospel. When God makes alive, he does that by killing. When he makes righteous, he does that by making guilty. When he brings to heaven, he does that by ta taking down to hell. I think this is what our baptism is all about, isn't it? That in baptism, we are marking our death to our old way of life. The killing of our old man, our old self, the part of us that, that is alienated from God. It's the killing of the old way of life so that we can rise to the new way of life. This is the truth of the gospel, that death precedes life. And what's true with our humanity is true of the whole of creation, of everything that God has made. So often God has to crucify or unmake, kill the things that we love in order to fix them and restore them. Thinking about how when my kids uh, were younger, they would make paper airplanes. Maybe you remember making paper airplanes as a kid. Or maybe as a parent, you think about helping your kids make paper airplanes. But, you know, when my kids were first learning how to make paper airplanes, you know, they would fold it all together and then they would, they would throw it and it would be like, it'd go like two feet right into the ground, right? And uh, then they would bring me their paper airplane and uh, they would say, you know, Dad, my paper airplane, it doesn't work. I can't get it to fly right. And so if you're going to fix your six-year-old's paper airplane, you know, what do you do with that? Well, the first thing you do is you take it and you unfold it. You unmake it. You undo the efforts that they've done to create something. And in unmaking it, then you can put it back together properly. Fold it just right. Give it back to your kid, and then they throw my paper airplane, and it soars like 40 feet. <laughs> Probably doesn't. But for this illustration, that's, that's what you have to think about in your head, right? Right? But imagine your kid gives you the kind of paper airplane that could only go like one foot right into the ground, and as you start to unfold it, they're like, no, no, no. I want you to fix my paper airplane, not unmake my paper airplane. This is how much, this is what we do, don't we, with our creations that we have. Right? We come to God and we're like, fix this. And so he starts to fix it, but it requires unmaking it. And then we take it back. Because we don't want you to unmake it, God. We want you to fix it. He's like, I am, I'm, I'm fixing it. So often the case that God has to strip our marriages of health in order to heal them. He has to bring our parenting to the point of failure before we can learn what it means to really love unconditionally. He has to take away our careers in order to teach us what it means to serve him with our whole lives. Because he has to unmake the things that we're bringing to him to fix. Not going to just tweak it a little bit. It's got to dismantle it entirely. Redemption doesn't come without the pain of unmaking. And because of that pain, we so often refuse to repent. If you think, like Seneca thought, that God's goal with redemption is to free you from everything, all the things that have been made and what God's goal with redemption is to get you free from those things, well, it's no wonder that you don't want to surrender yourself and what you love and your whole world to God. And you think God doesn't care about that stuff. You think he's just going to unmake it all and take you away, take it away from you. But when God asks us to hand him whatever earthly toy or 
paper airplane that we care about, ourselves included, it's not because he wants to take it away from us and just unmake it or take it away and just throw it in the trash. It's because he wants to fix it. And he wants to then give it back to us so we can truly and really enjoy it as we should. It takes faith to let God unmake the created things we care about in order to fix them. It takes great faith to let God unmake us in order to fix us. So this morning, is there anything in your life that you need to repent of? Maybe you're already a Christian this morning. Most of you, of course, are. That's why you're here. But don't think that you're done with repentance just because you've received the gospel. The whole of the Christian life from beginning, middle to end is one big journey of repentance. One big journey of surrendering our lives, ourselves, what we care about to God. And just when we think we've repented of everything, we keep finding things that we haven't really repented of. Things that we haven't really surrendered. Things that we thought we had surrendered, but actually we hadn't really surrendered those things. And God is constantly saying, now give that to me too. Give that to me too. I can fix that. I can fix that. I can fix that. But we're so tempted not to. Because we know it's going to require an unmaking. And we don't want to be unmade. Is there an area in your life that you need to surrender to the Lord. And don't just think here of your sins and your bad practices as though the only thing God wants you to give him is your sins. Right? You just bring your junk to God. God isn't just asking for your junk. Think of the earthly things, the good things, the things that he has made that you are tempted to keep pulled back from God. Your businesses, maybe. Your kids, your friendships, your hobbies. You're like, what does God want to do with my hobbies? He can keep, keep his hands off my hobbies. Your career, your entertainment choices. The created things of this world that God has made that you would prefer to handle yourself. Do you think that you care more about those things than God does? He's the one that made those things. He cares far more about the world that he has made than even you ever could or will. Surrender yourself and those earthly spaces of your life over to him. Invite him into those earthly spaces and let him have free reign. Be open-handed with the created things in this world, trusting that God's heart of redemption is not to strip you of your, man, your humanity, not to merely unmake your world, not to displace you from what he's made, but to restore you to your full humanity, to heal everything that he has made and to give it back to you brand new, just like he did with Jesus' body. Jesus' body is the statement that God is committed to the creation that he has made. When we repent, we're saying to God, you know best. I trust you more than I trust myself. I give up trying to make everything work on my own. And if God this morning is bringing a certain area to mind which is not surrendered to him, then I invite you, he invites you to repent of your self-sufficiency. 
Trust him to lovingly unmake that area of your life. It's hard, isn't it? Because sometimes we just want God to, to fix it while we retain possession of it. I'll hold on to it, just tweak it a little bit. Because like you had to give it the whole thing to me and let me unmake it. It's painful, it hurts, but I'll unmake it and I'll put it back together. Trust him enough to lovingly unmake that area of your life and in his time and in his own way to give it back to you in wholeness. Perhaps this morning you're not a Christian. I know we have some folks that are not Christians that join us on Sundays. If Jesus is calling you to repent, he's not calling you to repent of one particular area of your life. This initial repentance, this initial accepting of the gospel is a repentance of the whole of our lives. It's the repentance of all that we are. It's the call to surrender all that we are to God, all that we love, all that we care about, and to put it into his hands. The Bible teaches us that we are broken and that this world is broken and that only the life of God can put things right. If you let him, he will put to death the broken part of you. He will unmake the old you. And through Jesus, he will bring to life the new you. That's what it means to become a Christian. The Bible says that salvation is free. It's a free gift. It's not something that we can be earned, that can be earned. But there is a cost, and the cost is repentance, surrender. Salvation is free, but it costs you your whole life. So if you want to come to Christ, if you are outside the family of faith and you say, I, I want to come to Christ, I want to be a Christian, I want to I give my life to Christ, then that's what it is, right? The only thing you have to give to Jesus is yourself. That's what you give him. That's what he takes and that's what he fixes. It'll involve unmaking. It might be painful. And almost certainly at some point will be painful. But in the end, he can make you as you should have been all along. Not just in this life, but consummated in the day of judgment at the end. Maybe that's something that you want to do this morning. And you can't even right now in the quietness of your own heart. You could pray something like this. Lord, I see that I need you in my life. I've tried to go my own way. I repent of my pride and self-sufficiency. Forgive me for holding myself and my world back from you. I surrender myself and my world wholly to you. Come into my life by your Holy Spirit. Put to death the old me. Unmake the old me and raise me up to the newness of life. If you can pray some prayers in that vein, in that direction, the giving of yourself to God so that he can birth his new life inside of you and make you as you should be, Give yourself to him this morning. Right? Enter into the relationship with God that he extends to you through Jesus Christ. Let the life of Christ be born in you. And then come forward, be welcomed formally into the church family and the waters of baptism. Let us celebrate uh, that with you. Whether you're a Christian this morning or not a Christian, 
God loves you. He loves you as a human being. He loves the world that he has made. He loves your world that he has made, and he wants to redeem all of it. So give yourself and your world into his care. Let him unmake it as necessary, but trust in faith that he will put it all back together, both in this life and in the life to come, in all the ways that he intended it to be and that you in your heart desire it to be. God wants our best, so let's trust him that he will give us our best through Christ. Father, thank you that you gave us your best in giving us Christ, that when we want uh, in our own strength to uh, fix our own lives, to make things work, uh, to, to fix our worlds, to fix ourselves, Lord, we can't get it done, but you have given us Christ to heal us and to restore us. What I pray for any here this morning that whether it's a Christian who needs to repent of a particular area of life or a non-Christian who needs to repent of the wholeness of their life, I pray, Lord, that you would give them the gift of faith to entrust themselves to you and the unmaking that invariably follows and the pain that comes with it, knowing that you love us, you care for us, and you want us to be whole. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us faith to trust you in your work. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.